Welcome to Virtual Economy, a podcast about the business of games for the rest of us. We're your hosts. I'm Amanda Farrow. And I'm Michael Footer. Each episode will cover the biggest business beats and bring in expert commentary from lawyers, analysts, and industry pros. This is episode 136. Activision is bleeding players. Is this a, like in a in a vampire capacity? I want My, to suck your players. <laughs> like like when, when you go through and you you bleed another vampire and like vampire the eternal struggle. That's what we're doing to Activision. Are we gonna eventually commit to Diablery? Is that what we're doing? I hope Microsoft does. Oh, I hope they do it with the executive board. Yeah, actually, a really interesting conversation that happened, which I'll get into in a little bit. But first of all, you may be. You may be aware, maybe you're not aware. This episode is a little different for us. In fact, Manda and I usually sitting next to each other on the couch, you know, in our office somewhere, right? Uh, we are now on opposite sides of the continent in two different countries. Yeah, and a couple of different time zones. A couple of different time zones. It's uh, it's been it's been a week. We have been apart for a week. It's like the longest I think we've ever we've been apart for like five since five years ago. Yeah, we used to do this all the time back when we were yeah. bi-coastal, but I went home for the first time in five years, and I'm actually sitting in an Airbnb in Port Coquitlam, just outside of Vancouver, and I see my mom. My mom's on her phone, hanging out in the living room. My dad's on his computer. Mm. Gabriel, our son, is sitting and playing video games, too, so and it's my brother's birthday today. So Happy birthday, Steve. Happy birthday to my brother. Oh, little brother. Little brother. So, anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, we are actually, we are actually, uh, we're covering Activision today. We're doing a lot of earnings, the top half of the show. Okay. Okay. But, Mike. Yes. Why are we covering Activision when we have said very staunchly for two years, we are not covering Activision Blizzard? Sure. And the reason why we are is because I think we are reaching the point where it is relevant to. Microsoft and the acquisition, because there are three pieces. We're going to be talking about the earnings and talking about how Activision has suffered over the past couple of years and some of the things that have gone really wrong and where they're trending right now. We're going to be talking about a report that came out of Bloomberg about uh, a canceled project. That is pretty huge. And then we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about the Activision acquisition, we're going to do it here just to kind of group things because there was some reporting out of Brazil. This actually emerged from uh, somebody who translated this on Resetera, and then it was picked up in a number of places. Um, so this is the equivalent of the FTC or the European Commission um, investigating the acquisition. And what's, what's interesting about this is you had a number of uh, people respond to the acquisition, including Sony. Okay. Um, so it's it's really interesting how they are they're playing they're playing political games for the regulators, and it's that's, and it's kind of silly weird. when you when you look at it. it is weird. It's weird. But I think Sony would be very happy if this acquisition didn't go through. Oh, for I would imagine reasons. so. I would imagine so. It it would ensure that Sony remains on a more equal playing field. Because Microsoft is snapping up more and more studios and Sony, it's not Sony's um, 
that's not what they do. That's not their strategy. Their strategy right. is to build as much as they can internally to partner up with third party studios. And then after a number of years of working together, then look at picking them up. Sure. Which is how Nintendo, that's an even, I think Nintendo does that to an even more um, yeah. reserved. They're, degree. they're very laser focused. Like, I mean, when it comes uh, Nintendo, when it comes to the way that they invest and the way that they handle their mergers and acquisitions, it's, it's, it's so different than how we see out here in the West where it just kind of feels like everybody's buying everybody. Okay. It's not like yeah. that over in Japan. Um, do you want to jump right into it? Let's yeah, see let, let's jump right into it. And again, uh, I don't, I'm not saying that we're going to cover Activision on a, on a regular basis again until they're part of Microsoft. I just, I think it was important for us to address it because just like we didn't cover Ubisoft, although we'll be talking a little bit about Ubisoft later and kind of the position that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so Activision, their net revenue fell by 28.4% year over year. So it's down to $1.64 billion. And remember, Activision's calendar, fiscal year mirrors the calendar year. So this is the end yeah. of the first half of the year for them. Net bookings were down 14.6% to that same $1.64 billion. In-game net bookings fell by about 9% to $1.32 billion. So this is, their, this is in-game transactions. Right. So this is so, the microtransactions. This is, I would imagine, this is war, this is, tied uh, to Warzone. World of Warcraft. Yep. Yep, cool. this is this is tied to to a lot of stuff. But it's um, even worse than that. Yeah, expenses aren't that far off year to year. So this is really just about revenue. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, worse than that, though, because what's going on with the net income here? I'm looking at that number. Yeah, dropped 68% to $280 million for the quarter. That's down 54.9% for the first six months of the fiscal year from $1.5 billion to $675 million. This is for a company that used to run the table because of Call of Duty. Now, remember, I think Elden Ring is now the top seller of the year. It is. So this is this is unprecedented in terms of Call of Duty not holding that top spot. Oh, I don't want to say unprecedented, been, but it's been a long time. It's been a long time. I think that it has been holding that top spot for at least the last 10 years. I think it's even more than that, but yeah. That's what I said, yeah. at least. Yeah, no, I'm I mean, I'm just... confident in the last 10, but I don't, yeah, but I don't know before that. This is really just to give folks a, um, a perspective on how powerful Call of Duty has been. And that translates, and, and one of the things that we're able to see, because Activision does break this down on a quarter-to-quarter basis, is what's going on with engagement. Like, the, only good, piece, the only good piece of... of of information that like positive piece of information that came out of this was that they've increased developer headcount by 25%. But at the same time, if their expenses are not, not that far off year to year, what does that say? I also want to call bullshit on this for a second because what do they mean by developer? Are they not including PR folks and marketing folks? Are they not talking about community managers? Are they not talking about QA? Like what do they mean by developer headcount? This was something that they said when they laid off a whole bunch of people. And they Never. said that they weren't developers. They said that they weren't actually involved in the the process of making games. And that was one of right. the more galling things about covering that enormous round of layoffs. It was almost 800 people. It was 738 people. Um, it's a worker hostile approach. It is. Which is what so Activision I, Blizzard has been for a number of years. Very worker hostile. So it's great that you've hired 25% of people in this category. But who are you excluding from that category that should be in there? 
pretty much. So just calling bullshit just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, so for Activision Publishing, which effectively is now just Call of Duty, <laughs> uh, they had lower engagement, like significantly lower engagement. Revenue and operating income declined due to that engagement, although it is up sequentially, so quarter over quarter, so from last quarter to this quarter. Mm-hmm. But monthly active users dropped more than 25% year over year. And while that means, while that's affected by a number of different things, not the least of which is that, you know, COVID restrictions continue to lift and people Mm -hmm. are making their own choices about how they want to live their lives, which is fine. Everybody, you know, everybody's got to do what they got to do. But, uh, but yeah, it's even that though. It's yeah. Call of Duty has been impervious to a lot of the changes and a lot of the the waves that we see in the game industry because it just kind of does its own thing. It's the same kind of thing that Nintendo does with its first party titles. We don't normally mm-hmm. see those dips. Yep. You know, but Call right. of Duty is is an enormous pillar for Activision publishing. It's their only pillar these days. But we've also said, and I think this is really important, we have also said for a long time that gravy train is going to lose steam. If you're not innovating, and this is actually, I talked to my dad about this not long ago. I think it was a couple of days ago. Dad and I were talking about this. If you're not innovating on your IP and you're just churning out the same kinds of games mm-hmm. in different settings over and over again, but you're not giving the audience anything new, why would they go back? Why would they play and, it? And now they're like, they're leaning into remaking the Modern Warfare series. It's like, why? That's not necessary. I, 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 well, know, and here, it's, here, I know it's one of their best selling series and, that's and i know that people love modern warfare i don't agree but i know people love it but I, I it's not necessary i don't think i think that they need to be focusing on diversifying activision publishing's portfolio and ensuring that it's not just about warzone and even warzone's numbers have likely dropped yeah it's um it's rough because activision you know, I, I know I've said this a number of times on the show, but when I used to report on EA and Activision, EA was more of a shotgun and Activision was more of a sniper. You know, they had the music rhythm game. They had Guitar Hero. They had their family game, which was Skylanders. They yeah. had their sci-fi MMO shooter, shared With world Destiny. shooter in Destiny. And they had the pillar, like the core of it all, which was which was Call of Duty. And then they had their licensed games on top of it, which helped fill in the portfolio. Exactly. So Activision Publishing, and this is the conversation that popped up, and I and I've come around on it. I someone said, I think it was Adam Sessler who asked me, "Do you think that they're going to dump the Activision brand?" And I said, "Well, no, you can't dump the Activision brand. It has too much history. It's got too much value." And Glenn uh, Glenn White and Matt Piscatello both chimed in and said, "Really." That brand is so toxic now and people don't go out and buy Activision games the way they might. Even Ubisoft has a better uh, a more cohesive brand reputation as a publisher. Right? I mean, but I Activision Publishing, so. not Blizzard. Let's t- we're taking Blizzard out of this. But sure. Activision Publishing doesn't mean anything anymore. All it is is Call of Duty. And it would yeah. not surprise me uh, as I think about it and as, as Glenn and Matt pointed this out that they could dump the Activision or or rest the Activision name. I would. Use it for classic titles down the road. I would. And then they could release, if they decide to go back to Tony Hawk, we knew that we know that three and four, kind of, according to Tony Hawk, who was an infamous loose-lipped person, uh, said that three it's and okay, four It's okay, we remakes, still love him anyway. Oh, yeah. 
uh, three and four remakes were were in development and then canned partially because Vicarious, who did one and two, became Blizzard Albany. We'll talk about them later in the show specifically. That's that's a labor story. All right, well, that is a labor story. Let's, but let's but just real real quickly, they could rebrand Raven and Infinity Ward and Sledgehammer uh, and um, uh, whoever who does zombies. I don't know who does zombies. It's the, the other, Treyarch. They could rebrand them as Call of Duty Studios. Sure. And they could release all the other games just under Xbox Game Studios. Yeah. And the studio names. So yeah, they that, could they I could mean, dump whatever. the Activision name. Um, I would keep it. It's toxic. Yeah. It's and then they could toxic. bring it back a decade from now when that has cleared and apply it to old games, like classic games that they want to release. Like Atari Activision games. Yeah, um, yeah. All right. So moving on to Blizzard, uh, no surprise here. Diablo Immortal was the key driver that coming out at the beginning of June. So in the last month of the quarter, revenue and operating income were lower year over year, but up sequentially. Again, not a big surprise here. No. World of Warcraft net bookings were down year over year. Burning Crusade Classic came out last year and motivated a bunch of it. So that's the comp at work. Mm-hmm. Hearthstone still churning away up year over year. But their monthly active users were... Up 3.8% year over year, which is not a huge jump when you consider Diablo Immortal. So Diablo Immortal is offsetting of a loss, it seems. Yeah, it, it does seem that way because that is a tiny little number in comparison to the big numbers that we know that Diablo Immortal is doing in terms of revenue. Yep. so Diablo Immortal, I think it is safe to say, is the reason why they had any kind of positive engagement traction. They were up 22.7% sequentially because of it. This is the first time they're up in approximately two years in terms of yeah, that's not surprising to me. So again, this is also a factor. We'll see what happens when Diablo 4 comes out. But this is a factor of them them really just floundering in terms of release. And this is part and parcel of the labor story. And I and you cannot divorce what is going on in terms of a company's financials from the satisfaction and morale of the labor force. Yeah, absolutely. And people, people are voting with their wallets, mm-hmm. which is super important, you know, it's not just the internal chaos at Blizzard and Activision, you know, and, and Call of Duty Studios. It's it's that people are not buying Activision's games or Blizzard's games because of all of the labor issues that have been coming out over the last two years mm-hmm. after being relatively quiet <clears throat> for 20 plus. Yep, absolutely. Uh, real quickly, King, revenue and operating income are up year over year. In-game net bookings up 6%. Again, this is bucking a trend that we've talked about. Yep. With uh, mobile mobile suffering right now in large part because of the iOS, uh, because of ads and because of iOS um, privacy stuff that's changed. The, their ad business, again, here we go, up 20% year over year despite those industry trends. I wonder, I wonder if they are, if they have technology that they're selling as a, as a result. And they're able yeah. to act as an ad broker for other, uh, like, cause I don't know how their ad business works. Um, it could be that they're acting as an ad broker. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Cause that, yeah. that doesn't make any sense to me. That number, that number makes no sense. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Um, during the quarter, uh, in June, they acquired an AI company called Peltarian. Uh, their monthly active users, though, are down 11.5% year over year and down 3% sequentially. So we're seeing the same attrition in yeah. mobile usership. Yeah, that's um, So that's everything on the earnings, although a report out of Bloomberg this week indicating that there's some tension and this could have some far-reaching effects for, for Blizzard and Activision. Uh, longtime Chinese partner NetEase, with whom they released 
Diablo. Diablo Mortal. Yeah. Uh, they have pulled the plug, according to this report, uh, on a mobile WoW MMO that would not have been aligned with the PC version. It would have been set in a different time period. Much like Call of Duty Mobile is its own thing. Exactly. So apparently there are 100 developers who are working on this that have been, you know, either let go or moved to other teams. Um, and the reason for this was apparently due to tension over financial terms. Um, I was on the, um, I was on the uh, DLC podcast last night and we talked about this. Uh, so thanks to Jeff Kanata for bringing me on. And we talked about how this might not be a revenue issue. This might be an expense issue. If the game wasn't shaping up, this isn't about leaving the money on the table and fighting over percentage points. This is about potentially the game not being in shape and making a decision about who's going to pay for refactoring the game. At the end of the day, if you do not have a vision that is both coherent and cohesive, that you have your developers working towards, all of your people working towards, you're going to end up with a hot mess express at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really interesting. Uh, and the other piece of the Activision news, which we'll cover here instead of investment interlude, uh, this came out of a Resetera post uh, regarding uh, the regulator in Brazil, where you had a number of companies who were responding to the potential acquisition. Some of Sony's comments are hilarious, um, suggesting that there are very few companies that could make a AAA game the scale of Call of Duty, um, indicating that including their own games, um, nobody could create a franchise to rival Call of Duty. And therefore, this would actually give Microsoft a big competitive competitive advantage. Uh, talking about how Game Pass has grown to capture approximately 60 to 70% of the global subscription services market. Um, <laughs> it's just, it, it's they so funny. They have mover advantage. I know. And they I know. squandered it for but years. Al- but also they're like, we own Destiny now and we can't make, and, no, and like, nothing can rival Call of Duty. That, that's the thing for me. Honestly, that's the thing. It's like way to throw your new, your new acquisition, your new set of teams under the bus. Yeah, but also you've got they're your, apples your and oranges, mind you. They are. I know. I, I know. Different, but still. but you've got you've got your teams that are working on other service games. You've got your strong first party games. Sony Santa Monica working on God of War Ragnarok. You've got the Horizon franchise. You've got a lot of other franchises, and saying that like nothing's as big as Call of Duty. While from software and Bandai Namco over here just going, hey, what's up, guys? Elden Ring. You can do it with a with a mostly single player game. You can rival Call of Duty with a mostly single player game. So, so it's interesting. I I'm looking at the rest of these. Like nobody else really had a whole big concern. Warner Brothers didn't seem to to flinch a whole lot. Ubisoft didn't seem to flinch a whole lot. Bandai, every game is unique. Um, you know, they are concurrent competitors to Call of Duty, such as Battlefield, Valorant, or Destiny. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, I'd same play Valorant. You... Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's really interesting. I'm looking at all of the companies that responded to this. Uh Sony's is the most negative. The rest are kind of like, eh, like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, pretty much. Because because they know they could be in that position real soon. WB with what ha- with what could happen to WB Interactive, Ubisoft, which we'll talk about a little bit. So uh, so yeah, Sony saying some really, really interesting stuff to posture here, but none of it seems like it makes a whole lot of sense seems or like mirrors some, reality. Seems like some peacocking. It does. 
All right, so that was way too long, far longer than I wanted to spend on Activision, but it was essentially three stories in one. Yeah, exactly. And we had some context that we needed to inject. So let's move yep. right along to Paradox, which is reporting on Q2 for fiscal 22. Revenue is up, shockingly, up 14% to mm-hmm. 458.8 MSEC, which is $45.3 million US. Operating profit is up 92% to 213.6 MSEC or $21.1 million US. Net income is up 92% to 170.1 MSEC or $16.8 million. That's a lot. We've seen a lot of down quarters for Paradox as of late. Mm-hmm. And this is a really interesting recovery. It's a huge turnaround. Huge, it's huge, a, huge turnaround. It's a big turnaround for them. Absolutely. Revenues are up due to City Skylines, Crusader Kings 3, Europa Universalis 4, Hearts of Iron 4, and Stellaris. Um, during the quarter, they released new DLC for Stellaris, Crusader Kings, Surviving the Aftermath, and Prison Architect. Shadowrun Trilogy had its ports come out. Mm-hmm. And DLC for Stellaris's console editions also dropped. CEO Fred Wester attributes the strong quarter to the company's refocus on core competencies. I can't argue with that. I don't agree with the direction yeah. that the company is going and just only focusing on their core competencies. It makes them less interesting to me as a company, as a player. As an analyst, it's interesting, but as a player, mm-hmm. eh. Uh, Wester also acknowledges that Paradox has been quiet about its upcoming games, but that they will be sharing more in the fall. As per usual, My Dying Beauty, Bloodlines 2, was not mentioned, and I am sad. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be a while. That game is still. Oh, honestly, at this point, at this point, I feel like it's just vaporware. I don't like it. I don't like it because I mean, anyone that has listened to the show knows that I hold the Bloodlines, the 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 first Bloodlines game in such high regard. Even though it is a hot mess, expressive the game is just so fun. I started playing it with that fan patch that fixes. It's a hot mess, express trust. It really is. It's lots of fun, but it's just the buggiest game you'll ever play. (laughs) So that's what's going on with Paradox. Nothing like super interesting, other than you know refocusing on core competencies has has helped, but also I, I need to, I need to state this just in case you haven't listened to prior episodes where we have covered Paradox's earnings. Remember they wrote down a number of games. So of course in those quarters, they took some sincere losses and in comparison, this looks great, especially year over year, but there's a reason. That's a that. really good point. We talk about tough comps all the time, but this could be, yeah, this is, one. this is a positive comp because I believe around this time last year, they were writing down games. Yes, I think you are correct. All righty. All right, let's move right along to what's going on with EA for Q1. I'm going to try to... I'm going to try to move, move through this relatively quickly. All right. Um, Cause none of it's, none of it's super exciting. Um, because we're seeing a lot of, a lot of following the trends. Net revenue was up 13.9% to 1.77 billion live service made up more than 80% of total revenue. You can put that on the back of FIFA and, and Madden. Oh, I, sure. I'm sure. Plus apex. Oh yeah. No yeah. apex is definitely, definitely doing gangbusters as per usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, net bookings were down 2.7% to about $1.3 billion. Net income was up 
52.5% to $311 million, even with 10% or so higher operating expenses and a flat cost of revenue. So that's okay. uh, effectively cost of goods sold plus, you know, plus a little bit more. Um, they repurchased $320 million of stock in the quarter. Uh, so again, that's a, a strong sign for investors. Uh, trailing 12 months, net bookings are up 22% to $7.5 billion. Live services and other net bookings are up 20% year over year and are now 73% of net bookings. Holy Talking smokes. about so, and I want you to keep that in mind about how important live services are to a company like EA because there's a a little thing that we're going to talk about here that um that that creates some alignment interest. Um, FIFA and F1 were the stars of the quarter, so that Codemasters acquisition paying off already. FIFA Ultimate Team engagement in terms of weekly active users and daily active users was up 40% year over year. FIFA Mobile had its highest net bookings quarter ever with record daily active users up 10% sequentially. So these things are still trucking along. Uh, console still makes up the majority of EA's net bookings. That's about 50%. PC another about 27%. Mobile about 24%. It's very interesting um, to me that mobile and PC are about on par with one another. Yeah, and part of it is because EA did not spend a lot on... Remember, it's only recently that their sports games have really been present on PC again. Oh, no, I know. So I think that's probably why PC is kind of lagging there. Um, they are relying on pillars through the rest of the calendar year with FIFA and Madden in Q2, Need for Speed and NHL in Q3, Q4 has Dead Space, PGA Tour, Super Mega Baseball, an unannounced major IP title, and an unannounced partner title. Um, I, it's really weird, um, that it's an unannounced major IP title because I could have sworn that we slotted that in. It was Jedi. Yeah. So maybe that's slipping. I don't know. And the partner title is an EA partners game. So it's an indie title that we haven't seen yet. I'm very excited about that though. So me too. Uh, here's a weird one. EA says it shifted its perspective on single player games and I'm no doubt that's really, uh, yes. And no doubt, thanks to the huge success of Jedi Fallen Order and expectations for the upcoming Dead Space remake, because that's coming, as I said, in Q4. CEO Andrew that's Wilson talked about it is going to be hot. It's going to be scary. I'm going to need to wear a diaper. Uh, CEO Andrew Wilson talked about responding to player motivations and games, aligning with at least one of two key pillars, telling compelling stories and building strong online communities. Um, I'm not going to read all these quotes, but essentially what he was saying is like single player games fit into that first pillar it's not that online you know service games can't fit into that first pillar uh or even that single player games don't fit into that second pillar right. uh if if they build a strong online community um ea says you know pretty much if if people keep playing single player games ea is still going to make them but the reality here is if we talk about again going back to that the, that percentage of trailing 12 months net bookings where you know how much of it was live service 71 percent I'm just glad that they are no longer hinting at or outright saying that single player doesn't really have a place in the portfolio anymore. Yeah. And and I think a big part of that is Vince Zampella, quite frankly. I don't, I, I think that he is, we, that's, those are his fingerprints on, on this shift in at least the way EA is talking about single player games. Mm-hmm. So we have um, we have more earnings to cover in the bottom half of the show, but uh, why don't we slip away from that for a second? Talk about. Are we going to slip into something more investment oriented? We are. Excuse me, I'll be right back. I got to go to my investment boudoir. 
<laughs> weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Okay. All right. What's up first, hon? All right. Jumping right into investment interlude, let's talk about Keyword Studios. Now, remember, Keywords is enormous. They do a lot of partner development. They have tools. They do services like QA and all that good stuff. Remember Keywords Edmonton? Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. unionized. They're unionized in Alberta. All right. Keyword Studios has announced it has purchased Australian studio Mighty Games for $10 million Australian, which is $6.9 million U.S., the deal is com- is composed of 4.8 million uh, Australian in cash, 1.2 million in new shares, and an earnout of up to 4 million. Uh, that's that's a big one. And remember, we yeah. when we talk about when we talk about how acquisitions work, those additional earnouts are a good incentive for you to keep your workforce real steady. Absolutely. So what's interesting about this is it seems like the motivation for the purchase leans more towards uh, keyword service oriented stuff. And I remember they do, yeah. I think they do QA, they, they do, do localization. So they, do, they do, they do a little bit of everything. They even do some support and animation. Mm-hmm. So Mighty Games was founded in 2013 and has created automated game testing solutions, most notably its build and test platform. And that uses AI and machine learning to test code and identify bugs. Automation is good. It frees QA testers to do the more intellectual work that only humans can do. Mighty Games was co-founded by Matt Ditton and Ben Britton-Smith, the latter of which was the technical director at Tin Man Games, which made a series of game books that were actually pretty damn good. Yeah, I, I met Ben at uh, at PAX, ooh, I want to say PAX East one year, and I played a bunch of these Tin Man, the, the Tin Man games. They're really good. So if you ever played uh, one of the whole old Steve Jackson game books, oh, yeah. they were making games in that vein. So they were like little RPGs and there was dice rolling and character sheets and combat. And it was really, 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 really interesting. So don't, it was more than just a choose your own adventure style book. It was, uh, it was one part visual novel, one part RPG. Makes sense. I'd say. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, congrats to them. That's huge. Uh, our second and final investment interlude story mentioned in the first half of the show that we were going to be talking about Ubisoft Reuters broke the news this week that Tencent is looking to increase its ownership of Ubisoft. So you might recall in 2018, Ubisoft was under threat of a hostile takeover. Employees were wearing, I believe pins, you know, with Eve's name on them. Oh, how the times have changed. Oh, how the times have changed. Do you think that this is the beginning of a hostile takeover? No, I don't believe this is going to be a hostile takeover. It's not Tencent's thing anyway. That's not what No, because Tencent literally cannot. They are not allowed to increase their share. For those of you who weren't following this, in 2018, when Tencent came in and purchased 5% of Ubisoft, effectively ending Vivendi's hostile takeover attempt, part of the deal- There was paperwork- Ubisoft ensured that Tencent could not increase its share. They were not allowed to per- go out into the open market and purchase more shares. So, so how in are order they handling this then? They have to get permission. There has to be a new agreement in place that essentially removes that provision from their investment. But specifically, they're talking to the Guimau family about purchasing some of their share. They own about 15% of the shares and 22.3% of the voting shares. So that Tencent would effectively become the largest single shareholder. Now, that doesn't give them 
control. This isn't an acquisition in the way we typically think about them. Certainly. This is something along the lines of what we've seen with other companies that they, they haven't done full acquisitions of. They go in and make a big investment. But this, because this is already a publicly traded company, because they would be purchasing from the family that owns the majority or the plurality, I guess, of, yeah. of Ubisoft shares, um, this would free the Gimo family from that direct control. We don't know if the Gimo family is looking to get out, you know, enough to not be the single largest shareholder or to get out significantly. I can't imagine right. they'd sell everything. No, I'd imagine not. But but to me, I think, and this is not, and this is, I, I just want to be really clear here, world's smallest violin for the leadership at Ubisoft. I have a feeling based on the inaction, and we've seen uh, a better Ubisoft talk about how nothing has happened, yeah. how none of their demands have been acknowledged, let alone met, that this could be, Eve could simply be tired. And this, he is not the right person to lead this company through this crisis. And they are still in crisis, to be clear. Oh, absolutely. So the only problem here, though, is that Tencent, Axios broke the news last week that Ashraf Ismail, who was ousted from the company, he was the creative director on Black Flag. I think he was the creative director on, was it Valhalla? Before he was ousted? Yeah, before he was ousted, yep. Um. He is working for Tencent Timmy Studios. He was quietly working for them and Tencent caped for him when, when it came out. Oh, he's been a model teammate. It's like, oh, okay. So when you have a better Ubisoft that, that their first demand is stop moving known abusers from team to team and studio to studio, if Tencent acquires Ubisoft, there's a or acquires this this portion of Ubisoft that's yeah. not a full acquisition. But if they make this move, what message does this send to the workforce at Ubisoft that managed to get an abuser ousted just to find out that their new largest shareholder is employing him? It's horrifying. Yeah. And Ubisoft has suffered. Their financial performance has been down, down, down. It's not again, getting better. People, again, people voting with their wallets. Yep. So, so those were those were two two sizable investment stories. I mean, obviously we didn't spend a ton of time talking them, but that Ubisoft story, the Ubisoft Tencent story, I think has has a chance to to ripple out. I agree. I absolutely agree. And we'll have to see how things how things continue to shape up there. I have a feeling that we are going to continue to see either non-performance on existing titles and or we're not going to see anything new from either Activision Publishing, aka just the Call of Duty Factory, uh, or mm -hmm. Blizzard. Yep. And King will continue bucking trends because King can. Yes. Absolutely. So after all of that, it's time for a break. Virtual Economy is an F-squared initiative, and along with pro bono business consulting for up-and-coming developers, it's a way we are working to give back to the community that has already given us so much. To find out more about F-squared and the services we can provide, including pitch prep, media training, mock reviews, and business strategy guidance, visit our website at fsquared.biz. All right, and we're back. Hey, Mike. Yes. What time is it? It's time for quick hits. Oh, it sounds so beautiful. I'm sorry it's not right in your ear, baby. 
I know. I know. It's weird being all the way over here and only seeing you through a webcam. I know. This feels retro in the worst way. I know. <laughs> um, all right. I'm letting you take the top one. Oh, God. This might be the last time we get to make this joke, you know, <laughs> in context. In context. All right. So, Koch. Koch. <laughs> Media. Oh. Has uh, has rebranded itself. Oh. 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 All I know is I'm still sad that they didn't do they didn't do their presentation this year because I love Opal. Mm-hmm. I told her that on Twitter too. I was just like, "Are you doing a presentation? I love you. <laughs> Let's be besties." Um, so the company which handles media distribution in Europe and is the parent company of Deep Silver and manages the Prime Matter publishing label is now known as Playon. That's P-L-A-I-O-N. I mean, it's yeah. memorable. It's it, definitely it, it memorable. It is, but I, I, their logo looks like a play button with a with a P in the negative space, and there are so many look. What, Manda? Nothing. Are you laughing about peeing in the ne- in the negative space? This sounds like a Marvel movie gone wrong. I'm peeing into the negative zone. No, no. Take that, Annihilist. I'm not laughing. You're laughing. Yeah, Yeah, as opposed to Superman who pees into the phantom zone. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, He drops a big Zod in there. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Yeah, I miss you. Anyway, so that's that's, that's the end of Koch Media. I mean... Koch will always live in our hearts. Yeah, for sure. No, it'll always give us a Koch and a smile. Yeah, absolutely. As we can And there is a joke that I am not going to tell. No, no, you're not allowed to tell that joke here. You tell that joke to no one on one in DMs. Yeah, pretty much. Terrible. Okay. You just have to come at me and be like, Mike, what's the Koch joke? (laughs) You have to record audio, though, and you have to say it just like that. Yeah. That's the that's how you know that's the secret password. Yep. Okay. Uh, all right. So uh, the second and final quick hit this week. Uh, remember when Windows Central reported that Microsoft was planning to offer a family Game Pass subscription, and we kind of did backflips because we have three Game Pass subscriptions in this house. We currently do. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Xbox team announced this week that it is piloting just such a program in Colombia and Ireland as part of the Insider program, which you can opt into on your console. Uh, users will be able to add four people to their plan as long as they live in the same country. It does not seem there's a requirement to live at the same address, though, which is fantastic. So yeah, our good. daughter, who is taking an Xbox to school and does not have any games because we have all the games, um, you know, we told her, oh, we'll just buy you a Game Pass subscription. And no, we bought her a switch instead. Well, we can also buy her a game pass subscription if she really wants. Um, people invited to your group though. If you are doing this in Colombia or Ireland, your, your friends and family do not need to be part of the insider program. Only you do. Oh, that's good uh, to know. But yeah, there is a, if you go to the Xbox wire, uh, there is a story about that there. It, it's not, it's in preview right now. It's, um, it's not, working smoothly there are some hiccups but they've addressed it they there's essentially a, a bug list so that you can be aware of that okay yeah and That's those were quick hits extremely quick hits there were only extremely two. quick hits this week 
Extremely quick hits. Okay. All right. We have one, two, three more earnings, which we're going to move through relatively quickly. And then we have a brief labor report. And then we've got one story, man, that's just driving. I'm not going to make that joke. It's driving me nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't make that joke. Let's talk about what's going on with Nintendo. So Nintendo reported out for Q1 for fiscal 22. Revenue dropped 4.7%, so relatively negligible, just like last quarter, to 307.5 billion yen, or $2.3 billion US. Hardware sales were down due to supply shortages and other factors, dropping 22.9% year over year. The Switch is getting old. The OLED isn't likely motivating a ton of upgrades. It's, uh, It's coming to the end of the life cycle for the Switch. Now, I hope they keep the form factor, because... Everybody yeah. loves the form factor, but I can't wait for the back. switch. You what? Why are you like this? Switch you? No, I know. I know what that was. What? Everybody no. will understand what it is this time. No, they won't. No, you means unfucked our messaging. <laughs> okay. Uh, Software sales dropped 8.6% year over year, similar to what we've seen with Microsoft and with Sony. Mobile was down 16.8% year over year. Again, it's another trend that we're seeing across the industry, unless you're king, in which case you are bucking trends because you're king. Uh, Digital revenue was up 16% due to strong add-on content. And these are strong add-on content sales, rather, for first party and third party, which is a really interesting flip-flop from what's Mm -hmm. happening at Microsoft and Sony. So it, it's like, it just, it's, it's really interesting. I would imagine that those are like microtransactions and season passes and all that stuff. Hello. One second. Hi, I'm in the midst of recording the podcast, Sweet Pea. Oh, no, okay, thank love you. you. I love you too. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Vivi's a secret minion. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that uh, that flip-flop is really interesting and likely because of, you know, seasons, passes, DLC, microtransactions, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Operating profit dipped 15.1% to 101.6 billion yen or $762.9 million US. Profit was up. Uh 28.3% to 119 billion yen or $893 million US. Uh, very strong uh, financial exchange, so currency exchange here, gains that put profit from the negative into the positive. So again, that's what we saw over at Sony as well. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see it when we talk about Square and, and Sega as well. Yep, that's not surprising. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with sales in general. So the switch life to date sales is sitting strong at 111 million with 3.43 million in this quarter. They have no change in their forecast of 21 million new units for this fiscal year. Most of the sales were switch OLED models. Uh, so that's a a 1.52 million versus 1.32 million, uh, OG switch and 590,000, switch lights. The switch light, I think was an interesting experiment for them, but I think it only paid off at the beginning and not necessarily in the long term. They're going to have to drop the price of the switch. I think, I I think it's time. Yeah, I think it's time. 
Uh, software, Nintendo Switch Sports, which came out in April, hit $4.84 million in its first quarter. Good for them. Mario Strikers Battle League hit $1.91 million since its June release. Kirby and the Forgotten Land sold $1.88 million in the quarter and $4.53 million life to date since its release in late March of 2022. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe has now sold a total of 46.82 million units, 1.48 million of which were in this quarter. It remains the best-selling game on the platform for a good reason. And remember, the maps all came out. And apparently, according to my brother, maps are good. Yeah, apparently there's some uh, mobile maps from from Tour that are in there. And apparently the city maps are fantastic. Yeah, apparently those maps are just excellent. Uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons is almost at 40 million units sold. Smash Ultimate is at almost 29 million units sold. Breath of the Wild, which once had 100% plus attach rate, I remember us talking about that all Mm -hmm. the way back in 2017, um, is at 27 million copies sold, which now puts it at about 25%. There are no financial forecast changes. And Nintendo continues to do what Nintendo does, which is both buck and set industry trends. Absolutely. All right, moving on to Square Enix. First quarter fiscal 23 earnings. Revenue is down 15.6% to 74.8 billion yen or $562.2 million. Operating income is down 20.1% to 14.4 billion yen or $106 million. Net profit is up. 45.2% 45.2% to 18.3 billion yen or $137.5 million. Why? Foreign exchange tailwinds. Again, very, foreign very strong exchange. foreign exchange. Uh, all right, let's talk about the, the different pillars. Digital entertainment, which is where the games live. Revenue is down 23.3% to 53.5 billion yen or $402 million. Operating income was down 17.5% to 14.1 billion yen or $106 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is against a strong comp last year. This year they had the Chrono Cross re-release, the Centennial case, which I don't even know what that is, and Outriders World Slayer, which came out on the last day of the quarter. Uh, Last year's Q1 was the full release of Outriders, which did really well, near Replicant, Saga Frontier, Legend of Mana, and the PS5 release of Final Fantasy VII Remake. So, of course, that drove tons. HD games contracted severely from 25.1 billion yen, which is $188.6 million last year in Q1 to 12 billion yen, $90.2 million in Q1 of this year, more than 50% down by about that much in all regions. Um, MMO subs increase. So final fantasy 14, especially still propping things up. Mobile was down as quote, new titles were unable to offset weak performance from existing titles. Did we talk last week about the bananas stuff? About oh, yeah. no, or was that this week? The cannibalization stuff. I thought we talked about that last week. Do we not? No, Maybe we I, I think it, let's in case let's just revisit real quickly. So there were comments because I think it came out around here that uh, they were selling off the Western studios because oh, no, we didn't talk about that. You're yeah. right. So let me let me just it was uh, oh, right. Okay. It was big. There was some big analysis about this. Yeah, it was so uh, Dave Gibson, who is an analyst in who uh, who lives in Japan mm-hmm. uh, and it's Gibbo uh, Gibbo game is his uh, his Twitter account. Very, very smart guy. Uh, I really, really appreciate him sharing all this. So he was on the earnings call 
and tweeted this all out. And here's what, this is Dave translating, Crystal Dynamics and Eidos sale was driven by concerns that the titles cannibalize sales of the rest of the group and so it could improve capital efficiency. This is bananas. The idea that games in the West were cannibalizing sales of games in the East just is nonsense. They were different games for a different audience. I would say the only games that might have had a little friction and not even really because of timing and other stuff was Marvel's Avengers, which was a live service multiplayer game, shared world. I mean, it wasn't really shared world. It was multiplayer. And then you had Babylon's Fall, which has <laughs> your laughter says it all like that game is not good. So other than that, you can't like Tomb Raider is not going to eat Final Fantasy seven remakes lunch or or. No. Uh, but this goes back to the, the, the Stefan de Stu, uh, interview that we talked about last week where, uh, Square Enix, you know, was not managing its Western studios. In fact, in a lot of ways set unreasonable expectations for them that it did not hold its Easterns and still Eastern studios and still does not hold that its part. Eastern studios and releases to that part. So, it, it, it's like the, like we talked about last week, it was the West subsidizing yep. the East for either its failures or for, you know, the experimentation that led it to, you know, greener pastures, AKA, Mm -hmm. you know, final fantasy 14. Exactly. So, so that was utterly bananas. And this goes all the way back to when I started at game informer, like right in, in March, April of 2013, they were laying people off. They were talking about how tomb Raider underperformed, even though it sold exceptionally well in its, in its open quarter. Uh, so everything is, is bananas here. The other thing that Dave shared that is very interesting here is that the phase one of their plan was selling off these Western studios that are magically cannibalizing Eastern games with different audiences. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely reasonable. Completely reasonable. It's, it's nothing fishy here. But phase two they are going to be doing a portfolio review, a studio portfolio review, and they are open to selling stakes in some of their Eastern studios. So you've got Sony, Tencent, Nexon, potentially Netties that, that could be interested in purchasing a piece of one or more Square Enix studios. Oh, I need a nap. Yeah. So, so that's, that's interesting. And then what they'll do is they'll raise capital and they'll open new studios. Right. To do NFT stuff. Tell me I'm wrong. So no, I, I I don't think you're wrong. I think this is bananas. Oh, I I actually put all these notes in later in the show. I just wanted to talk about this in the HD context. So I put, I put a note in here that says WTF. (laughs) So, all right. So I just covered that early. Uh, Let's run through the rest of the pillars real quick. Amusements. uh, Revenue is up 26.6% to 11.9 billion yen or $89.4 million. Operating income up 266% to 1.1 billion yen or $8.3 million. People are going out. They're going to arcades. So that's recovering. Publication revenue is down 13.9% to 6.2 billion yen or $46.6 million. Hmm. Uh, operating income was down 25% to 2.4 billion yen or $18 million. Digital and print both declining. No real explanation in the uh, They didn't really in say the press anything release. about that? Nope. It's just, it could have been a tough comp last year. It's just, they did not go into detail about why that was. Okay. So that was weird. 
Um, merchandise was interesting. Revenue was up 33% to 11.9 billion yen uh, or $89.4 million. Operating income was down 11% to $800 million, or 800 million yen though, or $6 million. So sales were higher on their new character merch, but operating income declined due to the sales mix. So if you're not familiar with inventory management and product management, sales mix is which items are selling well. So if you had in one quarter or last year, you had a certain set of items that were selling well, and that's changed drastically. You produced against where demand was. So you might be holding inventory and your inventory costs might be going up because you didn't turn over the inventory in the way that you expected to. Right. But then you're, you're, you're producing more of new things that people wanted, different things Mm -hmm. that people wanted. And you, then you have to keep up with that demand. So your production costs are going up while you're still holding those inventory costs for items that were doing great, but now they're not. So just keep an eye on what goes on sale in the next quarter, I guess. And you'll see what was doing great, but it's not doing great anymore. Fair enough. Ah, boy. So that was square. Okay. That was a lot. That was a lot. That whole, the commentary thing there was just. I just, you know, I read that whole thread and I sat there and I'm like, what did I read? I have to go back again. So I read it again. And then we talked about it. And I'm like, this doesn't reflect reality. This is not reality. This is spin. Yeah. And then I, I, the funny thing is in our, in our group chat where we hang out, like I, I, I dropped the, the tweet in and one of our friends was like, I need you to explain this to me. And I'm like, explain, oh, this, to, explain <laughs> this to me. Like I don't cover this for a living. And it was very much, and it was very much, uh, the, it's always sunny, you know, with the, with the conspiracy board and the red string. Oh, 100%. And like, that's, that's exactly what it was actually, but in text form. In text form. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, do you want to do? Do you want to do Sega? Also, I didn't miss a single conversion. I know. I was. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything because I was just going to commend you for it at the end of the show when we stopped recording. But like, that's great. Yeah, I, it's I was. I'm not there in. distracting you. It's because I'm not there distracting you. I'm not saying that. I'm because saying that. I, I'm not saying that. I would never say that. <gasps> he just said it with his face, and then he dribbled water all over himself for. I am moist now, folks. I am so moist. It's all down my shirt. So great. Hubris. I'm going to move. I'm going to, yeah. I'm drenched in hubris. Remember, remember to fuck around is human, but to find out is divine. To find out is moist, apparently. Moistly divine. Okay. (laughs) Moist de salut. (laughs) Moving right along. Um, Let's talk about what's going on with Sega. So this is Sega's This is for Sega Q1 fiscal 23 earnings. Revenue is up 11.2% to 66.1 billion yen or 496.8 million dollars US. Operating income is down, however, 27.8% to 2.7 billion yen or 20.3 million dollars US. Net income is up 7.4% to 3.2 billion dollars or sorry, billion yen which is which equivocates to 24 million dollars US. Let's talk about the pillars because remember there are pillars. If this is your first episode uh-huh. with us, perhaps you did not know that about <laughs> these Japanese companies. They have many pillars. So entertainment contents. This is uh, their amusement. 
This is the amusement stuff. And games. This is where games, games went to. It, this is Amu- this is why Sega is really tough to cover because entertainment contents covers the game stuff, which is what most of our listeners are really interested in. But, but also, also amusement. amusement machines, like they're UFO grabbers. The yeah. Vivi machine, as the I Vivi- like to call them. Oh, the Vivi machines. Yeah, Vivi yes. does love those machines. It's true. Yeah, but not uh, your your packet, patchy slot and no, those machines. are that's a different pillar. That's technically a different kind of gaming. That's that. Yeah, that's gambling gaming. Correct. Uh, okay, so revenue for entertainment contents, which includes amusement and games themselves, is up eleven point two percent to fifty two point seven billion yen, or three hundred ninety six million dollars US. So consumer, which is their games and amusement machines, were up animation and toys were down all right entertainment contents is also animation and toys tough comps yeah tough comps for the toys and the animation because of sonic yes um catalog sales were below expectations for full games external development sales however were up and they don't really explain what they mean by external development sales i would like are they talking about publishing part like the the working in partnership or, or license no or license like for games like Teppin, which does have sega characters yeah, i think right does it maybe or is that just capcom yeah. no it's capcom it, it's not uh, not sega well if they've capcom. licensed out sega characters for other games like i i think that's what they mean but again that's know. not what i typically think of as an external development no yeah. we think about third party yeah. um Operating income is down 22.6% to 6.5 billion yen or $48.9 million. Everything was down, though. Yep, for operating income across those subcategories. Raw material price hikes for amusement machines uh, was was definitely a contributing factor on that one. Mm -hmm. What's going on with Patchy Slots and Pachinkos? Revenue was basically flat. With a 2% growth year over year to 10.5 billion yen or $78.9 million, operating losses improved from 1.6 billion yen loss to a 900 million yen loss. So that, you know, went from 12 million bucks to 6.8 million bucks. So like halved it almost. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. And then their resorts. What's going on with resorts? Revenue. For resorts is up 73.3% to 2.6 billion yen or $19.5 million, likely because everybody is getting out there and starting to move around, as is indicated by the fact that for the first time in five years, I am home. Uh, Operating losses improved from 1.1 billion yen to 300 million yen. Good. That's good stuff. $8.3 million US to $2.25 million US in losses. Recovery in progress as the government is working to... to stimulate tourism it's going to be a tough recovery i think um out in japan and honestly continues to be a tough recovery around the world i can i can tell you all kinds of stories even just from being in vancouver for the last couple of days how uh how tourism has definitely been impacted so yeah so just remember while they showed net income uh up this year that again strong foreign exchange tailwinds yeah. for japan which does not actually bode well unless that gets worse for them so like it's a double-edged sword. They yeah. didn't. Yeah, it's tough. It's really We're gonna tough. We're going to keep an eye on it because I, I have a feeling that next quarter, potentially as we continue to head towards a global recession. Um, and as we have said, if you are working on publishing deals and investment deals, get those deals in by the end of the year. Because mm-hmm. things are going to get ugly by the end of the calendar year. 
So that's the end of financial reporting for today. Let's move on along to what's going on in the labor report. Mike, take me through it. All right. So remember, I think it was last week we talked about, maybe it was two weeks ago, the Destiny lawsuit against a cheater who goes by whose name is Luca Leone. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the guy who uh, harassed, he, harassed them and he won a fucker issued death threats. Yeah. Oh, right. There we go. He won the he won the FAFO. Um, this guy, piece of piece of work. Um so there is an interest. This is more backstory about how this happened. And the reason why we're putting this in the labor report, because I don't want it ever understated how community managers and frontline um, customer support workers really take it on the chin from people. And when you have something like this happen, I don't want it to get lost how important those people are to the industry. So uh, what happened here was this is in Ontario. So on, on the Canadian side of things, uh, Superior Court Justice Fred Myers ordered a company by the name of TextNow to turn over the real name of an account holder associated with harassing voice and text messages left for Bungie employees. And turns out it was Luca Leone. Of course. The person who Bungie has gleefully sued and said, we need to do this. We need to prune these people from our community. So I'm really glad Bungie is leading the way on this. I wish more publishers and developers would fire their toxic players. So these messages use the N-word and requested a piece of DLC to simulate hate crimes against black people. In Destiny. Oh, like, so in cool. general, that's terrible, but, like, you're you're a, you're a not a good person, pal. Like, you are a really, really bad person. Uh, other messages contained more homophobic and racist epithets. He sent food to a Bungie employee's house to show he knew where he lived and then followed it up with a message about it. That's horrible. I hope you enjoyed the pizza, I think it was. He tweeted a picture of that co employee's company ID. Yeah. So Judge Meyer says, look, I don't know why Bungie wants this information from TextNow, but I don't care. I don't care. Quote, whether they sue in the U.S. or just give the name to the police, I am satisfied that the exceptional equitable remedy here uh, exceptional equitable remedy ought to be available to identify people who harass others who base race with base racism, who dox, abuse personal information, and make overt threats of physical harm and death, Myers wrote. It makes no difference that the wrongdoer target is not in Ontario or that proceedings will not be brought here. Bungie used that. this. Yeah, me too. Like this judge gets it. Bungie used the info to sue Leone and studio counsel Don McGowan has made it clear Bungie is not going to go easy on Leone. Nicholas Miner, who filed the fraudulent copyright strikes, strikes against Bungie and others like them, we they are going to prosecute them. They are going after them. They are using every legal remedy to keep their people safe. Bungie, I know you've had problems in the past, but actions like this, which directly positively impact your employees by standing up for them, by showing them that that the company has their back. That's beautiful. This is how it, this is the way. This is, this is, this is how you should be doing it. And this is how every company should be standing up for people who face harassment from the community. You're fired. I'm sorry. You are in our community. You are harassing our people. You're fired. You are banned. You are no longer able to play. You want to make a big deal of it? We'll ban you again. You want to keep making a big deal of it? We'll sue you. You will make our, you make our lives difficult. You, you threaten us. You threaten our people. You come for the, you come, you, you want to talk about, and I know we we talk about hey your your coworkers are not your family your employee is not your your employer is not your family, but you want to make people feel like they have family and they're taken care of. This is what you do. This is what you do. You you Stand act. Up for your you don't you don't say it. You act. 
You don't send so, thoughts and prayers. You make you take action. Yeah. <laughs> you send flowers to the funeral of the people you sued into the ground. Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Uh, some unfortunate Activision news to follow up with our, you know, relatively positive, you know, screw you from, from Bungie. Uh, last week we reported that QA workers at Blizzard Albany other, you know, formerly known as Vicarious Visions, continue to pour one out for them uh, in losing their brand identity. They've moved mm-hmm. to unionize with 95% of the pro- proposed bargaining unit having signed union cards. That's huge. It's almost everybody. Rather than voluntarily recognize the union, Activision Blizzard is forcing an NLRB vote. It lost at Raven. It will lose here. And instead of following Microsoft's labor neutrality lead, it is fighting against the, it's fighting against organization. It continues to, they just, they don't care. They don't care. Yeah. And they honestly, at this point, they have nothing to lose. Yeah. It's, it's just a crappy look, honestly. It makes me, it makes me. Mm -hmm. All right. Why don't you take the the last one on the labor? This one's incensing. This one's, this is an incensing story. News came out late last week that mobile developer Jam City has laid off about 17% of its of its staff. The estimate is that that about between 150 to 200 people have been affected. If you have not been following Jam City since they started shopping around to go public, Jam City was slated for a spacquisition last year which fell through. And last year, Jam City raised $350 million in new investment to acquire Ludia, which is based out of Montreal. If any of you know me, you know that I have worked in partnership with Ludia um, and Square Enix Montreal, which currently is brandless, I guess, at the moment. I I don't know what they're going to call them. I don't know either. And Gameloft Montreal as well for Next Levels. Um, And so... I was really excited for this when I originally heard it because I was like, I love Ludia. I love the folks working at Ludia. They're super great. Based on uh, some comments made by employees on Twitter, the layoffs may be more heavily focused on Ludia. Yeah. Not on Jam City, but Ludia. Yeah. I was uh, real angry about this. Why would you acquire a studio if you, especially something like Ludia, which does feature quite heavily on the talent side of the equation. Why would you hire all that talent just to get rid of it? I, I don't know. I, times have changed. And this is, this is my big worry that you have these deals that happened last year. And now the, the contemporary financial realities of a declining market that mean part. that we, we adopted all these mouths to feed and we can no longer feed these mouths. And that's really scary. Like we and are potentially because of all the deal making over the last 12 to 18 months, it, this could be a pattern that. that we see. Yeah. I'm really worried. We're careening towards that. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really apprehensive as to what this will mean for workers that have been recently acquired by these larger companies. And I just, we're very pro- I, I'm less here. concerned about about the Square Enix to Embracer purchase because no, Embracer's got a war chest. That. Yeah, that's it's, different. It's, it's mo- the mobile space, especially where I'm very. Well, it's concerned. contracting. The mobile space is contracting right now because people have more. They have other things that they want to be doing, or they don't. They don't like the free to play games nearly as much anymore. They want to just be playing, you know, the games that they've purchased. So, or they have other stuff to do, like reading books listening to music, yep. listening to podcasts like this one. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's, so that's, yeah, that's the labor report. It. 
Yeah, we got one more story that I, I wanted to slot in here because I think the reporting was so good and it also really drives home some of the problems in the space. Um, and we don't let an opportunity to talk about how terrible NFTs are slip us by. Yeah, it's true. We really do uh, so enjoy this shitting on NFTs at the sh on the show. It, it's true. Then uh, I love the people who email us. It's like, we have a great NFT story. I know you love covering NFTs. It's like, you don't actually listen to our show. I can <laughs> assure you. Yeah, pretty much. All right, walk me through uh, this. This story comes from uh, a great report over at Ars Technica, written by Kyle Orland. Uh, GameStop NFT Marketplace, we've talked about it. We know that it launched. Um, there was one thing that happened that we didn't cover on this show, and I'll kind of start there, where, um, you know, there were problems with the NFT Marketplace, and then someone floated this past me. It was a picture of an astronaut plummeting to, to the ground with a tongue-in-cheek description and i'm like that picture looks familiar and it was a riff on the 9-11 photo the falling man oh no. which folks i'm from the metro new york area i was i was born and raised here um 9-11 hit home quite literally and i watched um the coverage of that i was living in cincinnati ohio at the time and um the the cameras cut away from it, but the photos emerged. There were PowerPoint presentations that circulated even later that day of people and that included photos of people who could not escape from the towers who chose to jump. And this photo called the falling man was of someone who, who chose that route and um, that someone would create a jokey piece of art and sell it as an NFT and, on and this person did it on the GameStop NFT marketplace, which shows there's absolutely no curation that happens on that marketplace. So I just want to set the stage here for that. But Kyle's piece is about this GameStop NFT creator who stole independent games and minted them as quote interactive NFTs. His name is Nathan Ello. He's since been suspended from the GameStop marketplace. But again, this is a lack of curation and a lack of care. So Ello played dumb when he spoke to Kyle. Um, he said he was confused about licensing issues. Um, the issue here is while he's lost, while he's been suspended and while you can no longer purchase those NFTs on the GameStop marketplace, you know, we talk, we joke about, oh, well, the blockchain's forever. Right or wrong, the blockchain is forever. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem here. So if you have one of those NFTs, the content is still hosted on, on GameStop servers. And even if they took it down, there is a problem. Uh -huh. Those NFTs can still be sold on secondary markets. And GameStop uses something called IPFS, the Interplanetary File System, which uses a hashing system similar to torrents. So if you're not oh. familiar with how torrents work, it's distributed downloading, right? You're getting a, getting a few packets from this person and a few packets from this person, the more seeds the faster it goes and the more pieces you're getting from all of those different places. Yeah, for sure. So you can't delete this by removing it from the original source. So this jerk, Nathan Ello made 8.4 Ethereum. So about $15,000 plus 10% of the secondary sales, which were about 38.3 Ethereum. So he made another $7,000 by stealing other people's games. It's so great. And a lot so of them, great. even if they had a Creative Commons license, that's not commercial. 
No. So, no. so the fact that he did this is absolutely reprehensible. But here's the thing. GameStop gets a commission off of the sales on its marketplace. So they took in 2.25%. That's their commission yeah, of the 8.4 Ethereum. So yeah, they didn't they make care. a ton of money, but they are making money off of stolen games. And they're making money off of tasteless, offensive art. And, um, you know, is it art? Sure. But not all art is good art. Not all art is, you know, there's bad art. And this is this is a pro, this is reprehensible of taking the image of someone who died on 9-11, who took the took the, you know, jumped from one of the highest floors. And then turning that into a piece of pop art, go screw yourself, man, like that's it's gross. Yeah, and it's GameStop so making gross. money off of stolen games is gross. Not surprising. Yeah, they're they're only being some the moral of the story here is GameStop. They're they're looking at this as money. It's just money. Then they are they they are taking no care. They are done, they are not curate, curating. They are being simply reactive in how they deal with this kind of stuff. And quite frankly, if you're going to do this, you need to be proactive. You need to know what's on your platform. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So apologies. And, uh, I'm the nine eleven stuff makes me makes me a bit emotional um, because you know my connection to it. And I'm fortunate. I did not lose anybody I knew closely. Um, but there was the, the, you would know his name if I said it, uh, but the brother of, uh, a classmate of mine in college was on the plane that crashed, um, in Pennsylvania with that, that was brought down by the passengers, um, rather than let it crash into, you know, the Pentagon or the white house or the Capitol building or whatever. Um, so, uh, so forgive me for, for taking this one a little personal. Look, even though this was an incident that happened now 21 years ago. Jesus. Yeah, it was 21 years ago. I was a teenager when it happened. And it was still something that really affected me, even as a Canadian, even as somebody who lived on the other side of the continent, who had no real connection, or even at that point, any affinity um, for the United States. It was It was truly heartbreaking. And I think part of this is that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these people that are making this transgressive art and some art is going to be transgressive and mm-hmm. some art is going to be offensive and that's the purpose of it. But that's not what this is. This is not understanding. And if there is an understanding, then it's a lack of empathy. And I'm not sure which is worse. So let's, uh, let's uh, just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's not talk about this anymore because it's so gross. And instead, let's wrap up our conversation today by thanking you all for listening to the Virtual Economy Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @virtualeconcast. I'm at Amanda Farrow, and I am at Futterish. F U T T E R I S H. You can subscribe to our RSS feed at virtualeconcast.com. I promise not all of our shows end on such a down note. My my, my, my apologies for that. Uh, you can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. There's like one more usually. Yeah. Ah, Pocket Sand right in the face. Um, please subscribe. on the other That was the, the hardest Pocket Sand throw I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> please do subscribe and if possible, review the show. We do love to know what you think. Uh, if you have any questions, you can DM them DM them to us at, at @virtualeconcast on Twitter. You can also email them to us at podcast at fsquared.biz. 
And you can get at us on Discord. Just, you know, DM us and we'll send you an invite. It's a really chill. Yeah, we'd love to have you in our in our little community that is talking about tabletop RPGs and and fun Vigi games. And if uh, this trajectory continues, I imagine I will be uh, talking a lot about Warhammer in that in there. Oh my gosh, that's a whole story. But remember, folks, if you ever play Warhammer 40k with my dad, it means that you're officially part of my clan. And, you know, that's pretty cool. He makes us call him the Blood God. It's weird. I'm going to pass that along to him, actually. That's pretty good. I might make him a t-shirt that says that. Just call me Blood God. (laughs) I mean, Dad. (laughs) Um, This should be the only remote show that we're doing. I will be back in in my home, you know, my, my, my home that I live in, as opposed to my home where my heart is, uh, at the end of this week. So yeah, we might try to squeeze it. We might try to squeeze in a show on Monday, Tuesday. We are actually back on the road uh, because we are taking our eldest to college. Yep. It's sure. It's sure a time. It's sure a time. Yeah. But you know what? It's okay. Because you're all going to remember to wash your hands and stay hydrated and be good to one another so we can continue to do what we do. Absolutely. And we shall see you soon.